0: Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church.
1: We're now going to walk into a new series and hearing from the encouragement and admonishment of the church out of Revelations in the first couple of books in Revelations. And I'm pleased and honored to share with you, Beth Guckenberger is gonna be joining us and leading this series. <laughs> Come <on> up, Beth. <laughs> it's good to be with you, Beth. So Beth and her husband live here in the local area Um, And they happen to be the co-executive directors of back-to-back ministries. And once you graduated from Indiana Indiana University, you moved down to Monterey, Mexico, where you lived for 15 years, which was just awesome. Beth and her husband have um, 11 kids, biological, foster, and adopted Mm -hmm. that you've raised. Amazing story there.
0: Yeah, plenty of sermon material coming your way.
1: (laughs) As well as three grandchildren, I understand now. Uh, That's awesome. That's awesome. Beth's an author of nine books, including adult and children's titles. And here's the great thing, Beth, we've happened to know each other for about 25 years. So this is a great journey. So I am so looking forward to thank you for being here with Uh, us in community and sharing in this dear church series. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, we've known Dane and worked alongside of him in Mexico for many, many years. In fact, growing up, my children used to call him Daney. So if you see him around the next month and you want to call him Daney, that might make him feel right at home. Uh, it was an easy yes, though, to to step into your community and worship with you over the course of the next month. And as I was praying about and talking to Phil about what kind of content we could cover this month, Um, I was reminded in in 2014, my husband and I traveled to modern day Turkey, biblical Asia minor, to study the early journeys of Paul, those early missionary journeys. And I've told you before about some of my travels to Israel with Bible teacher Ray Vanderlaan from that the world may know or focus on the family. And what I was struck with when I went um, to Turkey was and studied those ancient first churches is they were facing incredible cultural pressure, entering in with this new what we will call biblical truth or jesus truth and and trying to figure out how to be, how to have relevancy in the midst of it and I, as we come out of covid and we we found ourselves in a culture that's literally on fire i was thinking to myself i want to bring biblical content to some cultural observations so that our church can continue to maintain its relevancy and bring God's living water into that fire. So that, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up, every, every vacation Bible school in every basement, I was a Bible study, fellowship kid, like, I mean, every, I, I knew my Bible, but I believed my whole life until I went to Turkey. That Jesus had a ministry and that he died on a cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead and then eventually ascended into heaven and gave the Great Commission and out went the disciples into all the world. And I just picture them going into different places around the world and saying, hey, guess what? We met God. And he's, he walked on water and he fed 5,000 and he'll save you from your sins. Services will be at 9:30 and 11. You're gonna love it. <laughs> But what I found out from being there is they walked into cities where people already had gods that they loved, who did things they assumed, like walked on water and fed 5,000 and saved them from their sins. And they were competing against these cultural giants of gods. And Jesus knew that. That's why he prepared them by telling them, you're going to know, they are going to know that you're Christians by the way that you love And that's really what we're gonna start. The seven churches, I'm only here for four weeks, so we're gonna do four of the seven churches that are found in the beginning of the book of Revelation. John wrote them a letter years, in fact, decades after they were formed telling them the things that he admired and were encouraged by their behavior and the things that he admonished and was concerned about where they had gone off track. And again, I feel like that's pretty relevant as we come back together as a church community and try to figure out how to navigate the world that we're living in. uh, Those churches followed the postal route. So the first church that they address in Revelation chapter 2 is the church of Ephesus. So I'm going to tell you, have you ever seen one of those movies where like... There's a couple of scenes at the beginning that don't really seem like they go together. You're essentially meeting one character in their context and another character in their context and another character. And then later you find out they're all related or they're all, they're all going to get on an airplane together or whatever. That's kind of how this message is gonna unfold. I'm gonna give you four pieces of a story that might not feel like they sew together um, as you're hearing them. But at the end, when we read together the letter that was written to this church in Ephesus, you'll see how they all kind of come together. And the first scene I wanna paint for you is, in case you were thinking that like all the cities that are represented in the church are like full of dust and donkeys, that would not be the case about Ephesus. Ephesus was like, It was like New York City. It was a port city there on the western coast of Turkey. It was the crown jewel of Asia Minor. The population was about a quarter of a million people. And most importantly to them, it was the home of over 20 pagan temples. Those temples, that, that community really, they enjoyed things like artistic beauty, cultural learning, erotic pagan worship, world trade, criminal activity and evil that flourished in the midst of wealth. So I'm pretty sure a letter written to those people would probably apply to us, right? Cuz we also have artistic beauty and cultural learning and erotic pagan worship and world trade and criminal activity and evil that's flourishing in the midst of great wealth. Those Ephesians, they enjoyed things that maybe we didn't we we can't imagine that they enjoyed, like indoor plumbing. And, and running water and fountains and these marble colonnades that lined the streets and gymnasiums and bathhouses and libraries and a theater that, sit, that could seat 25,000 people. And in part, their money all came from to build all those incredible things. Their money came because people came from all over the world to those pagan temples. And they paid tributes to those gods and it was their business. So imagine after the Great Commission, some of the disciples stumbling into Ephesus, um, just imagine the resistance those people would have to anybody coming in and talking about a God who would give away life as a free gift. It was a threat not only to their life, but to their whole economy. So bottom line is this very big place, these people had no interest in any kind of Jesus God. They had their own and they liked him just fine. The second piece I want to paint for you is they had this they had this architectural feature called an agora. And the best way I can describe an agora it was like Kenwood Mall, basically. You couldn't, it's the only place you could buy f- food and goods and water. It's where you met your friends. It's where you did any kind of business or networking. The Agora was the place where everything happened right in the middle of town. And you could not go into the Agora without worshiping Caesar. And by the time Domitian came into power, if you, couldn't, you would be put to death if you didn't allow his mark to be put on either you or your goods. So imagine... Brand new Christians who are being taught about who Jesus is and what it means to worship Jesus, the only true God, and we can put no other gods before him. And you want to buy food or meet your friends or conduct your business or sell your goods and you couldn't go into the agora. That would be very, very difficult and complicate the gospel message. There were these Christians that eventually evolved in Ephesus, their name, they they were called the Nicolaitans. The best way to describe the Nicolaitans is they're the kind of Christians that say like, I know that's not the right thing, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway, but Lord, you and I know that I don't really mean it, what I'm doing. Kind of imagine it like, the way I always remember the Nicolaitans, it's like they have their fingers crossed behind their back while they're kind of saying a little white lie, like I don't really mean it, Lord, And and you and I can both see the crossed fingers, so it doesn't really count. Um, They would make decisions to go into the Agora to burn uh, incense for Caesar or for Domitian because it was easier for them. It was, the Lord knew it. It would be kind of like when we watch a movie that we know we're not supposed to. And we're like, I'm not actually going to do those things. So it's not that big of a deal that I watch that when indeed it actually might be. I, I was a couple, well, about a year ago, I was invited to speak at a church here in this um, city and they were doing a series on the fruits of the spirit and they assigned the guest speaker self-control which i thought nice joke on me but and i i was wanting to really test my self-control during that uh, week prior to the message so i thought about two things that i have virtually no self-control in which is my consumption of Diet Coke and the way that I drive. (laughs) Those are two areas I don't have a lot of self-control in. I live 15 years out of the country and still kind of drive like I do. And so I decided the week before this message on self-control, I wasn't going to drink any Diet Coke and I wasn't going to speed not even one mile an hour over the speed limit. And in those moments where I felt the rub of my nature and this, this, conviction I was going to ask the Holy Spirit to give me some practical lessons on self-control that I could then tell the church and I was about five days into that week and a friend of mine called I live off the Kings Island exit and she lives over by Kenwood and she called me and she was in a crisis and she was crying on the phone and I said to her hey, hey just listen to me stay where you are I'm coming to you. Just stay stay right where you are. I'll be there as soon as I can. And at that, that, that point, like, my adrenaline's pumping. You know, I'm like, in a moment, I get in the car. I just, I know how to drive fast. I just put my little foot on the gas pedal, go get on 71 southbound, get over in the speeding lane, start to take off. And then all of a sudden, I remember, oh, it's the self-control week. Like, <laughs> and there's nothing about me that wanted to slow down. And I was telling the Lord, like, I was... I was rationalizing with him. I was beginning, I was like, oh Lord, I am practically headed to a mission trip. Like I am about to go pray with this lady. Like I know that you actually don't care right now if I speed or not, right? This would be fine in this moment if I override this conviction. In that moment, that's exactly how the Nicolaitans were trying to live in this community. They were trying to say, Lord, I know that this is like this thing that I'm not supposed to do, but does it count right now? Could we just get over it? Can we get around this and could I live? And we're gonna read in a minute when we read the letter to the church exactly how he feels about compromise and about, because compromises, they tend to add on to one another and they create momentum. And then the church starts to look like or imitate the world and he doesn't want that. That's not how his kingdom grows. The third scene I wanna paint for you is when the the Ephesians when the church started to grow what they were most known for was their radical love. I mean, radical kind of love. Listen, Paul would write to the church in, in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians shortly after it was formed. And he, he even references some of the ways in which they love in his book. Listen to these, some of these verses. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow Follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And there's a lot of more examples. If you read through Ephesians, you can see the theme of love being repeated because here's what the disciples did when they showed up in that town. They began these really small house churches, these very invitational missional communities where everybody was welcome. That would have been crazy to a Hellenistic world where everybody was divided on gender and class and economic status and education. I mean, they were constantly being divided. To have people say, we're going to all be in the same space and everybody is welcome. They began to persevere and this would have been really hard work. Slowly a person would come and then they would bring their family and this led to this radical form of equality where regardless of social rank or ethnicity or race and the, the Hellenistic world was astounded watching this church began to grow and it became very attractive to many. And and in that culture, they had a bunch of terrible practices. But one practice I wanted to highlight for us this morning is the practice of exposure. It went on for about 300 years in Ephesus. And what would happen is if a family would have a baby they didn't want, maybe it was born with a disability or it was the wrong gender, or often the way that your, your social status was determined in that culture was they would take your total net worth, divide it by the amount of heads in your household, and you really had like a per capita number. Depending on your per capita number would determine where you fell in the pecking order socially. So if you were going to have another child that somehow was like going to bump you down in your social rank, people would determine they didn't actually want that baby. And what they would do is they would leave it outside of the city gates. And Tertullian, the church father wrote in 178 AD about the practice of Christians who would go out to the city gates and rescue those unwanted cast out babies. And you can see from the graves in the Roman catacombs on the headstones, you'll see like, you know, inscriptions that say, so like somebody, so-and-so, the adopted son of so-and-so. And it makes me understand why Paul would write to Ephesians, to that church and use language about adoptions when he said God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. He knew that they would understand that metaphor that branches could be grafted into trees, that you could love like a son, a child that didn't come out of your body. That's the kind of love he wanted them to understand that he felt for them that you have been adopted into my family. And while Christians were picking up these babies at the baby gates, slave traders were doing the exact same thing. And there are writings from Ephesian, from at least one particular Ephesian physician who wrote a manual on how you could determine from an infant's length of their femur or robustness of their cry, which babies you should pick up and choose to bring home so that you can raise them to become healthy slaves that you could eventually sell. So you've got this crazy New York setting with this unbelievably huge agora and the worship you have to do to other people and then these little tiny missional communities that invited everybody, anybody could come, any color, race, age, ranking, anybody would come. And you have Christians going out to the baby gates rescuing babies. This church was known for. Welcoming slaves, feeding hungry people, loving in practical ways, rescuing infants. It's no wonder to me it started to grow. And you know who was right in the middle of the church of Ephesus? The pastor of the church of Ephesus is Timothy Timothy was the perfect choice to lead a a, a church in this community because he is half-Jewish, his mother was Jewish, and half-Greek, his father was Greek, and the word for that half and half combination in a baby was called a mumser, and a mumser was the worst kind of slur or slander to be called. You didn't want to be a mumser. You would never have been able to be allowed in the synagogue. You would have never been allowed to go to Torah school. You would have never been able to marry someone who was fully Jewish. You would have always had an experience on the outside. And, and so when Paul comes back into the town where Timothy was born and he learns about the fire and the passion and the understanding he has of God's scripture, and he's been on the outside the whole time, are you kidding me? You're perfect. Come with me, Paul says to Timothy. And he brings him to New York City and he says, you know what God has done for you? You tell everybody about it. And you bring people in who've always been on the outside. And that's what this church was known for. Radical acceptance, radical love. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking to myself, what is this church known for? What's the church of Cincinnati, what are we known for in this city? If you don't know Jesus, what do you think about what our church is doing here in the city? What's, what's the American church known for? What do we want to be known for? What do we doing? How are we demonstrating our faith? What does the outside world think about it? The fourth and last piece I want to paint for you before we read the letter is that this idea of God's people radically loving, sacrificing, extending themselves for other people. This is not an idea that just started with the ministry of Jesus. This is a very old idea that we could trace all the way back to Genesis. In fact, probably over the course of the next month, I'll teach you a couple of Hebrew words, but the the Hebrew word I want to teach today is the word that we translate into English as redeem. The word in Hebrew is goel, and we think of the word redeem like a church word because we use it a lot in church, like Jesus redeemed us or whatever. But the word redeem did not start out as as a religious word. In fact, anthropologically, it's more like a word that is used in patriarchal communities. So just just imagine with me for a second that we are all one big family. We're all siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles. And like we're just one big extended family. And because he's not here today, let's make Phil the head of our household. And in our big giant family where Phil is the firstborn or the oldest male, actually everything that we own, all of our pottery and all of our livestock and all of our belongings, it all belongs to Phil. Even though you might feel like you made it, you created it, you multiplied it, doesn't matter. It actually, in a patriarchal society, all belongs to Phil. But Phil also has all the responsibility to take care of us. And if somebody needs something, he's got to get it for us. And if somebody goes outside of our house, like maybe somebody's like wayward son chases a girl from another tribe and gets caught over there, it's Phil that will have to go pay the ransom to bring that child back home. Or if one of you says to Phil, please, please, I saw some really cool pottery this, this, uh, this week and I want to buy it. And he's like, it's not the right month for us to be buying pottery. And you go and sell your goat on the black market in order to get the money to buy the pottery you really want. When Phil goes and gets that goat back and brings it into the household, the act of bringing something lost into the father's house is the idea behind goel or redeem and God says to us he's the head of our household he is he is our biblical father and he says i will go and find you and i will use whatever resources i need to to bring you into the father's house and psalms tells us that he redeems us from our enemies psalm 135 he'll go get us pay whatever it costs to get us back from the enemies. He'll redeem us from the pit, that's Psalm 103. He'll redeem us from trouble, that's Psalm 107. Wherever we may find ourselves outside of the Father's house, he'll go and get us and spend whatever it requires to bring us home. He rescues lost children and brings them to the Father's house. Biblically, of course, God is our Father and in Deuteronomy chapter 21, he says that he gave all of his resources to his firstborn. Who's his firstborn? He'll tell Pharaoh in Exodus four that his firstborn is Israel. And God gave tremendous resources to the nation of Israel with the charge, go spend what I have given you to bring lost people into my house. And sometimes Israel has done a great job with the resources that they've been given and they've used them to bring lost people into the father's house. And sometimes Israel has done a terrible job with their resources throughout history. And they did not use them. They used them to build their own kingdom for their own convenience. And to the extent that God had to send a second firstborn into the world, his only begotten son, we read about in John chapter three. And what he says is, I'm going to give my only begotten son all the resources. At my disposal. He's going to have everything. But here's his responsibility. Now he has to take responsibility for all the people that are lost and outside of my household. And he needs to go pay the price in order to bring those lost people home. And that's what Jesus said. He He died on that cross and resurrected to pay the price so that everybody outside of God's family has had the ransom paid and now can come into his house. And it is now our job as those who have found themselves now in the Father's house to go out and look for lost family members, to redeem them with the blood of Jesus. And with this idea of this sacrifice, this using of resources, this going out and looking for lost people, this is the mindset with which the disciples entered in to Ephesus. And there's a lot of examples in the Bible of really great patriarchs. For the sake of today, I'm gonna talk a little bit about Abraham. He's, you know, he is the patriarch. And there's examples you can read in Genesis 14 where he went and paid the price to get his nephew Lot back into the father's house. But the story I'm going to unpack for a minute this morning is out of Genesis chapter 18. It says Abraham in the very beginning of it is sitting in the door of his tent. And we know he's sitting in the door frame of his tent because in Genesis 17 he got circumcised. So he's just there probably resting. And then he sees three strangers coming up over the hill. And when we read our Bibles, we know that those three strangers are two angels in the Lord, but he doesn't have that perspective. He just sees three people outside of God's family lost and he gets up out of his tent and he runs to them. And we should be paying attention right there because there's only three times in our Bible where old men run. This is one of them. One of them is with Jacob and Esau. And the third one is the father of the prodigal son who runs to him. They don't do it in that culture. It's undignified. It's undignified. It demonstrates shame. So for Abraham to get up in pain, in recovery, and run. And who is he running to? Three strangers. Three people outside of God's family. When he catches up to them, he says, Hey Sarah, that's his wife, bring me three sayas of flour. And sayas is a measurement that met three seahs of flour would be somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds of flour. So I don't know if you've ever made bread before from like raw flour, but imagine how many loaves of bread you can make with 50 to 75 pounds of flour. Way more than three people could eat. And the word he uses for flour, there's different words for flour in Hebrew. And this is like the finest kind of flour, depending on how you like mill it up or whatever. So basically Abraham is saying to Sarah, hey, bring way more than these strangers need of the very best that we have. Why is he talking that way? Because he understands that he's willing to pay whatever it costs to put on display to demonstrate that for people outside of God's family, we give them the very best. We show them this is how God's family works. And I found myself this week thinking to myself, how do I respond? to the stranger, to the alien, to the widow, to the orphan, to the imprisoned. Are, are we too busy just talking about those people and those issues, or are we actually going and baking some bread? And Jesus, is, Jesus would bring up that whole story later in Matthew chapter 13, he says the kingdom of heaven, if you wanna know, I know you people don't understand what I'm trying to do here, he's saying. You wanna understand what it's gonna be like. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all the way through the dough. He, he knew his audience would immediately understand he was referencing the story out of Genesis chapter 18. He's like, you want the kingdom of heaven? You wanna know what it's gonna be like? It's gonna be like Abraham and Sarah, who were willing to do whatever it took to spend anything it required to bring lost people home. And that's, that's I want you to go home thinking about that. Like, What, will, what would you spend for the next marginalized outside of God's family person that you drive past or hear about or learn or know is there. So just imagine with me, fancy place, you have the hard work of these missional communities, inviting people one by one, family to family. You have the perseverance that that would require to like go find out someplace else I can sell my goods, someplace else I can get my food, someplace else I can associate with people. Think about those Nickelodeons that are are like, you know, It's actually Nicolaitans, but I remember it because of the television show, the Nickelodeons, who got their fingers crossed behind their back. You know, like these people that are rescuing babies and known for their love. Now John on the island of Patmos writes a letter to this church who has matured several decades since Ephesians has been written to them. And here's what he says in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We'll talk about that a little next week. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. You know how they tested those people? Not because of what came out of their mouth, but because of the way that they lived. They could tell a false apostle, a false prophet, if they weren't radically loving people other and different than them. That's how they could tell the people that were truly born again. I know you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Good job. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Remember that crazy love? that invited the slave into your home and the person that was 10 rungs above you or 10 rungs below you or the wrong gender, the wrong education or the wrong color. Remember that kind of love we used to have? You stopped loving like that. Consider how far you've fallen. That word fallen in Greek, I don't know what you think of. When I read in English, somebody has fallen. I think about some very public kind of sin that like, you know, is like on the bad list of sins. The, the word fallen in greek really actually means it can mean like a flower that has withered or a ship that's out of control so imagine like we can fall and be like just like oh, i'm just kind of i'm just kind of exhausted i'm like withered i don't really have it in me to beg bread right now i, I can't even hardly take care of myself or out of control you're just like like running around like crazy. You're not a person of peace. You're trying to fix things that aren't yours to fix or gather things that are for a different kind of kingdom. You're just kind of going crazy. This is what he's talking about. Consider how far you've fallen. And if you have fallen, if you find yourself withered and out of control, if you find yourself feeling selfish, self-absorbed self, then here's what he tells us we're supposed to do. The next verse says, repent. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember those? Invitation love, rescue, sacrifice, do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from your place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I don't like compromise. I don't like people pretending that they are doing one thing while they're knowing otherwise. I want people who live by their conviction who put on display my ways. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus was known for the way that it loved and it fell. And the cautionary tale for us today in 2021 is never stop loving each other. Never make anything, programming, ambition, compromise, anything chief over love. Do the things you did at first. What, what does this church do? What did it do yesterday? What kinds of, what, how are we known for loving our neighbors, for being involved in outreach, for contributing to City Gospel Mission, for going to places like Guatemala, Mexico? Like, what, what are we known for? We're, we, we gotta be known for that kind of radical, invitational, welcoming love. That's what we gotta be known for. I was, um, back-to-back turned 20 five years ago and we had a gathering at a local church. And at that gathering, this woman came up to me and she's like, do you remember me? I went on a mission trip once with you guys. And I was like, obviously probably had some blank look on my face. She's like, I was like 14 at the time. I'm like, wow, you've grown. You know, like I didn't recognize you. And she's like, oh, you remember, you were teaching one time, you told this story and then you were teaching out of James chapter one about pure religion is this to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. I said, that sounds like me. And she said, um, I made a commitment in my heart. I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that night. And I made a conviction in my heart that I was going to spend the rest of my life exercising that, that kind of pure religion. I was going to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. And she opened up her jacket and she had this baby carrier and she was carrying this impossibly small baby. She said, today my husband and I are foster parents in Hamilton County where we take care of medically fragile infants. And I was like, that's awesome. And like the rest of the night, I told a hundred people about her. I'm like, can you believe it? She was only 14 and now she's doing this and the baby was so little and I was telling everybody about it. And then I saw her a year later. And the next time I saw her, I was like, hey, how are you doing? How many babies have you had this year? And she goes, well, I've actually just had the same one. In fact, halfway through this year, my husband and I began the paperwork to bring that child permanently into our family through adoption. And I was like, oh, congratulations. I love that for you. She's like, well, about 45 days ago, that mom began to turn her life around and the county recently put together a reunification plan and actually next week, she's gonna go back home. And I said, how are you doing with that? Because that's a complicated story. I'm a big fan of family unification but that's a complicated story and she said well I'll tell you what at first I was mad and scared and confused and frustrated and overwhelmed and discouraged and she's like then I took all my big feelings and I went to Jesus that's the best part of the story actually that she had big feelings about the call that God had on her life and the sacrifice it was going to require of her, and she went to Jesus. She said, when I spent time alone with Jesus talking to him about it, he impressed upon my heart that he felt about that mama the same way that I felt about that baby. And if his spirit lived in me, that I could grow to have that kind of love for that mom too. She's like, at first it was not easy. I just started praying for her. And then I started sending her pictures of her daughter, And then I started talking to her, and actually this last week she asked if I would be that baby's goddaughter, so I guess I'm going to be in their life for the rest of their lives. And I said, John 3, 16, God loves, he so loves the world. He's such a good, so lover. He so loves the world that he had a heart for that woman in Hamilton County in 2019. So significantly that almost a decade before he placed the seed in the heart of a 14 year old so that it would grow to the place of maturation and be ready to respond when someone outside of God's family needed to see sacrificial love. That's how God does it, and it's not always gonna be convenient, and it's not always going to be comfortable, but it's always going to be good. This is how the church grows, and oh, I want to close um, with, a, with a, uh, a story. I remember the first time I heard this story, I was in college, and when somebody uh, read what I'm about to read to you, I just stood up on my chair in front of a large group of people, because I wanted to physically demonstrate what my heart was feeling when I was reading it. It's the story of a young man in Rwanda who heard about the gospel for the first time through the Jesus film and gave his life to Jesus, but nobody else in his tribe did. And they began, he, he couldn't shut up about it. He kept talking about what, what it meant to walk with Jesus and what it meant to understand Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus. And his tribe was getting increasingly agitated till the point where they confronted him one night and said, tomorrow at the tribal council, you are going to be put to the test. And if you do not denounce this new God of yours, it's going to cost you your life. And that night, we now know he sat down to write what I'm about to read to you. The next day at that tribal council, he did indeed lose his life as a martyr and go home to his brand new savior, Jesus. Someone else in the tribe who had also understood the gospel from that Jesus film, but didn't yet have the courage to declare it, went into his room and found what he had written and preserved it. And now here we are almost 50 years later, nope, not quite that many, sorry, bad math, decades later, (laughs) and uh, it still moves me. This kind of radical declaration of a commitment to the gospel, our culture is on fire. And if we want to bring the living water to it, if we want to change it, if we want to invite people back into the Father's house, it's going to require the kind of commitment that this young man puts on display for us. Would you listen with me as I read? I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power, the die has been cast, I have stepped over the line, the decision has been made, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure, I am finished and done with low living and sight walking and small planning and smooth knees and color. Dreams and tame visions and mundane talking and chintzy giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or plotits or popularity. I don't have to be right. Or first, or tops, or recognized, or praised, or regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by prayer, and I labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I can't be bought compromise, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of my enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up. Until I've prayed up and stored up and stayed up for the cause of Christ, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I must go until he returns and give until I drop and preach until everyone knows and work until he comes again. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear because I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.